We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Take a look here at uh, Proverbs 13, the very last few verses, 21 and following. Uh, These verses, you can see where they're going if you just look at some key words. It says in verse 21, adversity pursues sinners. The righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. 22, a good man leaves an inheritance, prosperity to his children. The wealth of the sinner stored for the righteous is gone. But then after these two verses on prosperity, 23 and 24, here is how they can be lost. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor. It is swept away by injustice. The, uh, everybody in Israel had land. Fallow ground was land you owned and weren't working. That there was a chance you could take it and develop it. But here you have oppression and it takes it away and leaves you like Jezebel did uh, Naboth, which has gone. And then another way in 24, you ever look at your kids and think my life is in jeopardy? Yeah, he that withholds his rod hates his son. He who loves him literally seeks him diligently with discipline. You seek him his best with discipline. So you can have a child and uh, instead of... Uh, uh, Blessing, like in 22, being bestowed upon children's children. and 24, it's gone because of that kid. So you can have injustice sweep it away. And you can have a, a child that never learns to walk with God. And it's all gone. And so indeed, in 25, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite. God will always take care of him. Stomach of the wicked is in need. The verse is about abundance, abundance, inverse, abundance. In the middle, here's how you lose it all. Greed and not taking care of the next generation. When I was early on in my Christian life, a fellow told me a really, he was a navigator and he gave me some real good counsel. He said, all young guys are looking for the will of God. And he said, that generally means the girl you're going to marry and the career you're going to have. He said, that's not simply the will of God. God's not that shallow that all he wants to do is, is give you a mate and uh, uh, give you some money and a career. It's a lot deeper than that. He said, the will of God is not a, a possession or an attainment. It's a path that you're in. And that can careers change? Can Capital and funds change. Yeah, over a weekend. Yeah, things change. And so the will of God is not some attainment. It's a path that you are in. So he said, don't be looking for the will of God for your life. Ask what is the will of God. And you can live in that all the way to the cross and be in the will of God. A good illustration. All who are weary and heavy laden come to me and take my yoke upon you, uh, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. The yoke it's talking about 
you have two animals and a yoke and you would put an ox, but then you would not put another young ox, you would put an older ox. Why would you not put two young ox? It's like sending two teenagers out in your car. Okay, nothing but destruction can come. And so you would take a young ox, but you would put him with an older ox or a young donkey with an older donkey. And that younger donkey would have to walk with the wiser one that had learned the master's voice. He couldn't run off on his own. That's what he's talking about. When he's talking about take my yoke, it's not like somebody driving him. It's like somebody in the yoke next to you. Take my yoke and learn from me that I'm older than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm the word of God. I'm wiser. And if you'll walk with me, not lag, not run ahead, not run off, you walk with me and you'll find rest for yourselves. The will of God is a path that you're in. Well, with that in mind, that's what this little paragraph is about here, is about walking in the will of God and as a result, blessedness to come on a life. Well, in verse 21, he says, adversity is right on the heels of a rebel. The righteous, what will come is prosperity. Now, this again is a principle, it's not a promise. It's not that if I am walking with God, I will never have times of leanness or of pain. No, but on a general sense, overall, that life will be prosperous. Uh, at any given time, you can have the Apostle Paul in Philippians. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the most prosperous of all men and women know that life can at any time be a trouble, a struggle. So we're looking at the overall picture of life. And it tells you, there's three things you need to understand about prosperity. That God is the creator of all things. And all things, Jesus said, that the earth is his footstool. The king rules this world by his sovereignty. And there is nothing in this world that acts in contradiction to God's will or will survive in contradiction to God's will. You remember the prophet Jonah? How many things were submissive to Jonah uh, or to God? The caterpillar, the plant, the sun, the wind, the great fish. When the great fish gagged up Jonah, that's right, Everything, the Assyrians were submissive to them. The winds and the waves were submissive to him. Everything was submissive to God, except one thing. What was the only thing in rebellion against God in the book of Jonah? Jonah, okay. And so whenever you have a human being that is in submission to God, there is going to be, as Peter said, uh, let all those who seek to enjoy good days turn his face from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn uh, away from evil and find peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of God is against all who do evil. And so you, like the ox, you walk with Christ and watch his prosperity. So you have to know, number one, that everything is created by God and nothing is outside of him. The earth is his footstool. 
And secondly, because of that, there is a way and truth and life. There is a way to do life. There is no suggestion box in the temple, all right? It's not part of the furniture. There is a way and it leads to truth and it ends in life. With Satan, there is a departure. It leads to lies and it ends not in life, but the wage of sin is death. And so uh, life is rigged. It's rigged. To enjoy it, you do it the creator's way. You have to do it like he says. It says in the book of Isaiah that in the kingdom, men will say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and learn his word that we might walk in his ways. Take my yoke and learn from me. You'll find rest for your souls. It's why when you go to Las Vegas, you see such opulence. You know why you see such opulence? Because they've got a lot of money to spend on the strip. You know where they get that money? From the gamblers. They pay for it. And the reason is because the guys in Vegas know there is no gambling in Vegas. You think there's gambling, but it's not. Because who designs Vegas? Vegas. And so you're not going to beat that system. And if you start making a lot of money in the, in the uh, casino, they'll find a way to comp you and keep you there because time is on their side. And we're going to catch you up and leave you indigent when it's all over with. So there's no gambling in life. It's rigged. Are you saying, Tom, that God is like Vegas? Yes, but you've never heard that illustration. <laughs> Who wins in Vegas? The house. The house wins. Who wins in life? The house. God made it. It has to be done his way. And so there are maxims about life. There's, are there maxims about how to do marriage? Yeah. There are maxims about how to make and handle money. There are maxims about kids. There are maxims about work and at work ethic. There are maxims and absolutes about relationships with people and about handling life's curves. The key to life is to find them because they're not complicated, they're very simple, and to walk with God, to have an attitude that I'm not the smartest guy here. I'm gonna to have to trust God. I'm not that strong. I'm going to have to trust God to walk with me. Amen. You can look in the, in the mirror and get an amen from that, that you need help. Okay. Uh, and when you, when you are adverse to life and relationships and marriage and morality and children and all the rest, adversity pursues you in every sense of life. Your, light, your head will be in a sling continually of messing things up. Uh, it's best to walk with the wind. You know, when I used to jog when I was young and had what was called cartilage, okay? <laughs> and I would go out running. And as a runner, I loved running. 
in the, in the heat, you could take stuff off and run. In the cold, you could put stuff on and run. What you can't run in is wind. It's just no fun. You can, but it's just no fun. You don't like to run in the wind. Whenever we would have a strong north wind coming down, down the highway, up from Sanger and Crumb, coming on down, I would get Teresa to drop me off up on the access road, and I would run down south. If it was a long run, I'd have her take me to Sanger, and I'd run 10 miles. If it was a shorter run, we'd go to, to Crumb, I'd go five. Every once in a while, I'd get energetic, we'd go to Valley View. Okay, I learned to take my phone with me. Okay, and so it was funny because when you get out of the car, the wind is blowing, but as you turn and start running, you're not aware of the wind. It goes away because you're running with the wind. Before I'd get out of the car, Teresa would say, may the force be with you. <laughs> yes, and it would. So running can either be a blessing or it can be a drag if you're trying to compete with the universe, it won't work. And that is what, why adversity pursues sinners. Prosperity pursues the righteous because they're running with the wind. It means you gotta want the Bible, you gotta read the Bible, you gotta submit to the Bible, and you gotta apologize often when you de depart from it. Did y'all learn that in college? <laughs> no. You didn't have a class called the holiness of God one, I don't believe. No, that is taught in Sunday school. I remember Dr. Uh, Dr. Lott at North Texas in anatomy and physiology. He would say, I can tell you how anything in the human body works. He said, I can't tell you why anything works. And then he would say, for that, you're going to have to go to Sunday school. God can show you how to live. Well, in verse 22, here's another way that can be prosperous, that it's not just you that can enjoy a happy life and a loving marriage and uh, honoring children and not sinking yourself through bad financial deals. But you can pass it on 70 years into the future. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, grandchildren. That goes approximately 70 years. Uh, how long was Israel in captivity? 70 years, and we had to clear away the old generation, take a nation of orphans and let them start over. Zerubbabel's name, the, what would have been the king of Israel, but he was now just the uh, governor, was named born in Babylon, Zerubbabel. And so what God has to do is wipe out a generation, take the teenagers and start all over and take a nation of orphans and raise them himself. Exodus begins with a nation of orphans. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy with a nation of orphans. Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah begins with a nation of orphans and God takes them. Uh, one of the most oft mentioned verses in all of your Old Testament goes like this. Moses said, I wanna see God. I wanna see you, I wanna see your glory. God said, no, you don't. 
because no one can look upon me and live. I'll put you in the rock and a cleft in the rock and I'll cover you with my hand and you'll see me pass by. That's the closest you can come. There will be a day you can look on the face of God, but not now. And it says, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. This is God's self-declaration of who he is and you can find it all through your Old Testament. Yahweh, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Are you glad? Yes. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Context is not talking about thousands of people, it's thousands of generations. All flesh is like grass, glory like the flower of grass and the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord abides forever. It will always be there for you. He keeps loving kindness for thousands of generations. Uh, that old time religion, it was good enough for my father and it's good enough for me. It'll take care of you. And then God says this, I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. You raise your fist in opposition to me and I will by no means let you skate with that. It's called sin with a high hand. It's coming back on you. It may take a while, but it is. He will not leave the guilty unpunished and he would visit the iniquity of the fathers. He said, here's how bad it can be on your children and your grandchildren. So I may smite you for three generations. I will be merciful for thousands of you. But don't think that you can lift your hand against me and walk. Um, this doesn't mean that it's a hex. Generational sin is not a hex. That if you listen to Jim Morrison and the doors in college, that you have wicked children, okay? That may happen, but it's not a hex. It means that if I will be an immoral, angry, short-tempered, dishonest father, it's gonna be the hand of God. You're not gonna have kids that have to live with that. If I'm a drunkard as a mother, you got kids that do not thank God for their drunk mother. They're gonna struggle. You're gonna be like, uh, oh, who was it, Forrest? Who was Forrest Gump's girlfriend? Jenny. Y'all don't know Romans, but, but you know, he's Forrest Gump. You know. <laughs> Jenny! <laughs> you remember her father? And she would say, God, make me a bird and let me fly away. Let me fly away. If you had a father, that was godless, you couldn't wait to get your driver's license and to get out of there. If you were a girl, you couldn't wait for the boy with his license to come by and get you out of there. And so it will get visited. Sometimes we can take counseling appointments. Uh, Rosie, you've probably seen this yourself, to where you can go back to parents and grandparents. Sometimes we can go darn near back to the Civil War that your family has passed this down, all right? And it's not just a hex. You have learned to imitate what you saw and you can't do that. When you get, if, if you came out of a rotten family, go home and read Ezekiel 18. And it says, when a son has a sorry father and observing this, he says, 
I will not do likewise. God will not remember his father, but put his blessing on that new limb on the family tree. Any of y'all had to put a new limb on the family tree? I've had to say it to kids. You're about to do something altogether different with your family. We're going to start something new right here. And so he says, it's going to visit down upon your grandkids if you don't watch it. Uh, and it can be very literal. There can be goods and property that a grandfather is able to pass on. I tell you, I had one great thing for my grandfather. Nate, you got a picture? This is my grandfather. That's my mother's father. His name was Robert Perry from Belton, Texas. He was a floor finisher. About five foot six, but he's a real strong guy. Handled these great big old machines back before carpet where you'd have to sand the floors and then put uh, turpentine on them and he would sand floors. Hard working guy. Uh, he and his wife enjoyed a loving relationship. Their children, uh, my mother and my father passed it on to us, a loving relationship. Uh, my brothers and I, at any given point, somewhat to a degree, passed it on. <laughs> okay. Uh, I became a Christian. Teresa's parents were just like them. That was three generations. Our kids are somewhat normal. Okay. It's the best you can do, you know. But they love the Lord and they married good girls and they have kids that are learning to walk with God. And you can take my grandfather and my grandmother and go back to Nettie Logston and John Logston. They, he was a revivalist in Baptist uh, revivals. As a matter of fact, if you ever go to Hardin-Simmons University in uh, Abilene, you'll see the Logston Center for Theology. And that was my great-grandfather's brother, Charles Wesley Logston of Abilene, that gave that Center for Theology that was there. And you can trace them back. Mimi, Nettie, everybody has a great-grandmother named Mimi. But Mimi, who we revered, and uh, Granddaddy John, and we never got to know he passed away. But we could trace them back uh, to right before the Civil War out in Georgia of an old godly bunch of Baptists. It's like seven generations came down in our family that got affected. Uh, I still have Mimi's Bible. Her favorite verse was, uh, to this one will I look, to he who is humble and something another and walks with God. I can't remember. But that was her favorite verse. And so my grandfather didn't leave a whole lot. Tell you what he left me. <laughs> my brother had his hat, all right. And Bobby passed away and Nellie gave it to me. If his house was burning, he'd go grab this hat. Because let me say it again, that was, that was granddaddy's hat. Granddaddy had a notoriously small head, however. <laughs> okay. I tell you what, it's funny. He drove this great big Buick. I don't know what it, it was a 50s Buick. We called it the mothership because it looked like from Star Trek. You know, his thing was massive. And uh, he, and, and when you drive it and, and hit high speed, it would just settle in and just, just cruise. It was so smooth. And uh, granddaddy liked to drive fast. Something else he passed down to uh, our boys. 
But uh, he would get to driving, and on that Buick, the uh, uh, speedometer kind of came out telescopic like this, so you could see it. And so he would be driving, and Eula, his wife, would say, Robert, you need to slow down. And he would go, yes, dear. And he'd put that thing on the speedometer. <laughs> Another thing he passed on, <laughs> the rest of us. Yeah. But uh, how many of you had marvelous parents and grandparents? Did you raise? Yeah. Wasn't that great to be able to brag about your parents and your grandparents? And when I went to college and saw all that song and dance of the 60s and all the arguments and the syllogisms, I met no one that could measure to my grandfather, my father, nobody. And so when you're wicked in verse 22, the wealth of the sinner is stored for the righteous. God takes it away because God is sovereign over wealth and he can do with it what he is pleased. It's like the temptations. Y'all ever listen to them? Papa was a rolling stone. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. And when he died, all he left us was alone. And I said, he just left us alone. You want to have something to leave with your kids. That's when they prize your hat and your Bible. How many of you have kids that when you die, they will fight for your Bible. I want his Bible. I want her Bible. That they will tell stories. I used to see my mama in the breakfast room with her head down praying. I used to see my daddy when he would put me to bed and he would pray over me. You ever know what it is to be a kid and to hear your father brag to God about you? God, my boy here. Lord, he's got a great mind and he's got such a gentle soul. I don't know, Lord, maybe he'll be president. Maybe he'll run the Mayo Clinic, whatever he wants to do. But this boy has got great potential and I thank you for him. Do that about five, six days a week for about 10 years. See if that doesn't shape your kid, all right? When you play at the, pray at the meal, you just don't give a mantra. I mean, you... Bless God for his goodness and for the struggles that you go with. And then the next thing you do is you love your kid's mother. If parents will love each other, you can almost violate every other principle of child rearing and get away with it. The proverb goes like this. Better is a plate of vegetables and a house of peace than a fattened ox and a house of strife. It's better to live on food stamps with parents that love each other. It's better to live in Bob Cratchit's house than in a house of, of, uh, of strife because you're itching to get out of there. So to walk with God will bless you. It can bless your kids and your grandkids. Verse 23, here's something that can cancel it out. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor. Fallow ground is ground that you own, but you're not using. 
you're letting the soil be enriched, stuff grow and die and go back into the soil. It's called crop rotation. So you don't leach out the land. Uh, you could never lose your land in Israel. It was given to you by Joshua and Eliezer. When they cast lots, it was to your tribe and your family, and that was passed on to you. You always had land. In other words, you always had a chance. You dig? You always had a chance. You had a place to have a home and to farm it and to trade with it. You had a chance to do something. Israel was not equitous in the sense we all have the same things, but it was had equity and you all got a chance and it was illegal to move the ancient boundary that the fathers had set. You could not buy a man's land. If he had to sell it, if Steve lost his land and had to sell it, you got a brother, Steve? All right, his brother could buy it and give it back to him and nobody else, if I wanted it, I couldn't have it. He would buy it and give it back. And so you never, ever left a guy indigent in Israel. Uh, but sometimes in verse 22 or 23, it is swept away by injustice. Do y'all remember a guy named Ahab and Jezebel? Ahab looked at the property next to him. Naboth said, I want your property. Naboth said, it's my daddy's property. I can't sell it. Even a king can't take that. Homestead law, that's mine. And he got to Pouton and his wife Jezebel, who's a Philistine, who's not a Philistine, she's a Phoenician. She said, what are you crying about? He won't give me his land. Aren't you the king of Israel? This is classic pagan politics. There is no divine law binding you. You can do anything you want. Said so Louis XIV said, I am the state. Is that Louis XIV? Okay, I am the state. I can do what I want. She held a party, invited Naboth, hired guys to lie against him. They stoned him, took his land, gave it to Ahab. Elijah came to them and said, the blood you shed on that land, because I saw what you did. They're, they're gonna lick up, the dogs are gonna lick up your blood on that land. And it happened. And so you don't take another man's land. What that is called is, and if you've done any sociology, you hear this term. It is the root, many times evil, of all society. The first evil is that you have a government that neglects God and you have no absolute by which men are governed. The next is, it's called the non-compassionate use of accumulated wealth. Y'all ever heard of feudalism? Where the guys that had land had the land, the feud. And everybody else could not have land. He would live on your land and share crop it and work for you and fight for you. And you were the Lord and he was a serf. And it ne the twins, twain never met, okay? You know what changed that? Was the bubonic plague. You lost about a third of the men of Europe. And so now he didn't have any men to work his land. He needed you. And so now workers weren't just bound by the land. They could go higher out into what was called tradesmen. And they could charge for it. And you had the beginnings of capitalism and middle class and began to kill feudalism. By the mid-1800s, feudalism was dead. But it was a non-compassionate use of accumulated wealth. Unless you had a real good Lord that would care for you. It was a, a bad deal. Uh, in France, you ever heard this? Marie Antoinette, the people have no bread. Let them eat cake. 
Everybody said, all right. And they had a revolution and they took the rich guys, the priest, and they cut their heads off. It was not built upon the Bible. It was built upon Rousseau and Voltaire and their atheism. You just kill them. All right. And then it fell into disrepair and a guy took over about five foot four. Napoleon took over. And then in Russia, you had the, uh, the same kind of feudalism and you had a revolt against it. And it was led by a fellow named Stalin that was a devotee of Karl Marx. And he said, workers of the world, unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. And so the proletariat kills the burghers, the bourgeois, and takes over. Okay, so where you don't have a compassionate use of wealth, man will fix it, and he'll fix it with blood. Who took over after the Russian Revolution? Stalin, then Khrushchev, and on and on to Putin. Uh, in the South, if you were a farmer working cotton, cost a lot of money to hire workers. To make more money, you could buy guys and they would work your land for free. What were they called? Slaves. And the North said, you can't do that. And the South said, we got states' rights. And the North said, you don't have that right. We had a war, the biggest bloodbath in American history over the non-compassionate use of accumulated wealth. And then up North, you had what was called white slavery. You had an industrial north, people move into the cities, and the guys that owned the mills, you no longer needed expert workers. All you had now was machines. They could just hit the machine. And so you could hire a guy for a buck a week. And then a Irishman could say, I'll do it for 75 cents. All right, you, get out of here. You're in now. Here came a Pole, a Polak. He said, I'll do it for 50 cents a week. Here came a Jew who could do it for 40 cents. Until pretty soon... Uh, you could get injured on the job and that was just too bad. You got sick, you're done. You're a woman, gets pregnant, you're done. We're gonna work your kid when he's eight years old. Uh, you'll have no ventilation in here, no escape route. And if the shirt waist company catches on fire, you burn it to the ground and everybody dies with you. And government was called laissez-faire. Y'all remember what that means? Hands off, let the system go. A lot of that came out of cultural um, um, Darwinism, survival of the fittest, let the fittest win. And a guy named Teddy Roosevelt said, that ain't right. And government intervened and gave labor laws and child labor laws and female rights and all kind of stuff. But the nation wouldn't govern itself. And so the government broke in. You always have some kind of revolution when it doesn't work right. Central America, South America, y'all ever heard of uh, colonialism, colonialization? It's where a more advanced government comes into a less advanced and takes all the raw materials out of it, moves them to their country and has the natives do the work for nothing. They get richer, you get poorer. And you started seeing in the uh, 1900s, Yankee go home. Did they have a revolt in uh, Africa, they did, among the Zulus, South Africa. Did they have a revolt in India, taking Indian cotton? 
His name was Gandhi. He had a revolt. The non-compassionate use of accumulated wealth. In the 650s, we had gotten rid of segregation. In a, in a, what did I say? Segregation. But you had Jim Crow. You had a ceiling on a black man. You still can't go to the college that you pay taxes on. And did righteousness take over? Uh, Kennedy sent in the National Guard into Mississippi, Alabama, Little Rock, and said, that's done. And we had violence again. Are you with me? The non-compassionate use of accumulated wealth. In Israel, you could make all the money you could within limits. You, if you were going to glean your field, you could not pick up every stalk. You left it for the poor. If you had a fruit tree, you beat the branch from the trunk to the tip, but not from the tip to the trunk. If it wasn't ripe, you left it for the poor. Every third year, your tithe went to vision ministry to take care of those people. If a man's died, his brother-in-law would take, or his brother would take that wife and raise up children to her to take care of her. And so even within Israel, with, with the equality and equity, you always had a sense of the dignity of man. Amen. And that's why in our country we struggle without God between just making money and giving handouts. We struggle in that. If you were Spock looking at history and you came to the book of Acts, you went, Captain, voila, here it is. Acts chapter 4. As many as had wealth laid it before the apostles' feet, and no one had poverty. They would give it to as many as had need. A guy named Barnabas sold a tract of land, gave it. Did anybody make him do it? It was God's grace. We're the guys that are the experts in the compassionate use of accumulated wealth. That's what America has become known for from the 20th century on. The revivals that took place in the 1800s set a standard, and now America is the one place with the YMCA and boys clubs and, and goodwill and everything else in the Salvation Army that has a sense of compassion. It kind of ran into our blood. Isn't that something? I think I beat this horse completely to death. Okay. And so everybody gets a chance unless you get a wicked guy that will come in and oppress the poor. They get a chance. If you want to be a bum, you can be a bum. But we're going to give you a chance. I beheld the field of the sluggard. Behold, the wall was broken down. The field was overgrown with thorns. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the house to rest, and your poverty will come like a burglar. So you can lose it all through being lazy. All right? The Hebrew word is whitus trashus, okay? Where you just don't work and you lose it all. Don't email me, okay? In verse 24, here's another way you can take wealth and blessing away from your family. He that withholds the rod hates his son, but he who loves him seeks him diligently with discipline. 
You want the best, and so you beat holiness into him. I recommend it, okay? Uh, When you are a parent that fails to curb your child's nature. Now, Mr. Rousseau in the Enlightenment said a man and a child were basically good. The problem were the strictures put on them by society and by the church. If we can get rid of them, we will have, and he coined a term, you ready? It's called the noble savage. Just let him run naked and he will do what is right. You remember the 60s? That is Rousseau, okay? No rules, just let man go and be himself. It was reflected in music and art and everything. Uh, A parent that fails to curb the nature of his kid. Have y'all discovered your kids are sinners? Yeah. Mary and Joseph would have gone, really? But nobody else will. Uh, Their lives become like fallow ground that's taken. They could have been something, but we never got to found out because the parents would not rear them. You raise corn, but you rear kids. Bring them along, okay? And so a child without discipline is probably never going to become what he should. It's taken away. You ever been to Kroger's or in an airport or in any place where you see a kid out of control and he's disrespecting his mother because she knows she won't do anything in public. He's like a trout on her arm going around and everybody's talking that's watching in the restaurant. Somebody better beat that kid. I mean, beat him now. Yeah. With our boys, I would tell them, you know, I can let you go and life will discipline you. You're going to cry long and hard when you wake up naked, tattooed, married and broke, okay, and hungover. Life is going to discipline you hard. Or we can squeeze it down into just a few minutes or I whop you with this stick (laughs) and you'll cry and that welt will go away but we'll learn good idea I remember one time Teresa took our Benjamin went to Dr. Dowling I don't know how many of you went to a kid doctor and didn't Dr. Dowling and Dr. Dowling was looking at Ben and had a big old bruise (laughs) down on his leg Where'd you get this, Ben? He said, Mama beat me with a fence post. (laughs) Thinking, cuff her, take her out of here. That was just last year. You know, he's 45 years old. But I'm so glad. How many of you had mom and daddy that put that stick on you? Anybody have mom and daddy? How many of you needed it? (laughs) Yes. I am so glad my mother put that stick on me. I've told you before, she'd beat me counterclockwise. She was right-handed. If you're right-handed, you grab your kid with the left hand and you put that belt on them, all right? And they take off running, so you beat them counterclockwise. 
And ever so often, you know, remember how you jump? All right. And then she'd get mad. And she'd throw that head fake. You go up, boom, and she'd catch it. <laughs> so I'm so glad. As a matter of fact, I, men especially, I have never known a man that boasted about the disciplinary neglect of his parents. I've never met one that said, my parents never laid a hand on me. I've never met one that really thought that was a good deal. But men will brag about their beatings. My daddy beat me with a stick, really. My daddy beat me with an acetylene torch. <laughs> sure did. My daddy beat me with a car. Ran me right over. <laughs> so, don't email. All right. David had a rotten kid they had to execute. His name was Adonijah. And he was born after Absalom. I'm sure David missed that kid. And it said with Adonijah, 2 Kings 1. And David had never crossed Adonijah at any time, saying unto him, Why hast thou done so? He never made him earn it on his own. We have a term for that, where the parent just gives the kid everything the parent has done and does not make the kid struggle. It's an old term about taking all of your wealth and getting rid of it. Whenever you would go to war and take all their wealth, you would take all their spoil. And so to spoil a child means you're not gonna have to work. Daddy's worked and I'm here as an ATM to give you everything you want. You hate your child. When you go home, you get you a black and white movie came out in the 30s, won the Academy Award. Spencer Tracy, Lionel Barrymore, Mr. Potter, uh, Freddie Bartholomew, the greatest of all child actors in England, John Carradine, and it's called Captain's Courageous. Watch it. Just watch it. Trust me. Watch it. Make your child watch it with you. And when it's over, your child will say, beat me, father. <laughs> beat me long and beat me hard. Okay. Keep, <laughs> keep watching. Verse 25, we wrap it up. The righteous has enough. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled, going hungry, having abundance, and suffering need. I have learned the mystery of being filled and having abundance. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'll trust God in this. And so the righteous is always gonna have enough. My wife and I started the ministry at $400 a month. But you know what? We ain't missed a meal. Now we must make seven, $800 a month. Okay. And I still ain't missed a meal. Amen. A lot of you old timers remember when you started out, God took care of you, God takes care of you now. 
you just be righteous. But the stomach of the wicked is going to suffer need. Do y'all remember whenever Jesus fed the 4,000, fed the 5,000, crossed the sea, and the disciples were concerned about something. They didn't have any bread. They'd forgotten to take, take care of themselves. They just served everybody else. Jesus interrupted their conversation. We ain't got no bread. Boys, you beware of the leaven, the bread of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You be aware that you might have a little hypocrisy in you. What does leaven always do? Spreads. Don't you let a little bit get started in you. And they said, uh-huh, good. We ain't got no bread, you know. Just did. And Jesus stopped him and he said, boys, when I fed the 5,000, how many baskets did you have left over? 12. Yeah. Twelve. Yeah. When I fed the 4,000, how many large bushel baskets did you have left over? Seven. That's 19 containers that you had to eat with. Why? What were you doing? We were serving you. Hmm. If you'll walk with me, I'll take care of you. But the, the uh, contingency is, do you walk with me? All right. The righteous has enough to satisfy him. It's been my observation. I'm 72. I know about everything. Okay. I'm 72. But I tell you what my observation has been. People that are indigent, not just poor, a lot of, my daddy probably never made $600 a month, fed the, the six of us in our house. And he took, we weren't rich, but he, we were taken care of. Uh, I don't know if we were poor or not, but he, God took care of us. But uh, those that, there's a lot of people that when they're working hand to mouth, all right, you can still be very happy. You can be happy with $15,000 a year, with a million dollars a year, not assured of happiness here, and you're not denied happiness here. That's it. It's your relationship to God with what you have. The guys that are indigent, that their heads are in a sling continually, and they can't get on top of it. And I asked my two sons in law enforcement the same thing. And I said, here's what I've said. And they said, you father are a genius. Okay. Because I've noticed people can be indigent because of circumstances, because of the dust bowl, because of the Great Depression. There's guys struggling right now in the Ukraine. After hurricanes, people are in big trouble. But those are generally things that you can right that ship pretty quick. All right. A lot of us has been at that place at some time. But sometimes they can be at a real sad place. Or you can have a, an, a, a PTSD soldier may struggle getting back on his feet and getting going again. Uh, a guy with a war wound may struggle to get back. Um, there's things that can take away your abilities that are going to need some help. But that's something you really can't control. It comes, you work through it. But then there are some 
that are indigent because of neglect. They will not do the things that it takes to have somebody have the confidence in you to pay you for a service. You don't show up on time. You do lousy work. You create division by gossiping and belly aching. Uh, you clock out early. You are always looking to jump ship and head on as soon as somebody else gives you $100 more. And they kind of go through life always struggling. See a man skilled in his work? He'll not stand before obscure men. He'll stand before kings. They're not willing to pay the price for excellence to have a guy say, I can trust you. My son said, you're right. Secondly, it's the way they'll make money. If they don't want to work through the system, if they don't want to be, my son was telling me that the guys that they rest generally on the street all have two things in common. They can't stand accountability and they can't stand responsibility. I will not be subject to anybody and I will not be bound to anybody. Me, me, me. I love myself. I have my picture on my shelf. That's what my wife says to me. And so I'm not, and so as a result, they need money, but they don't like working. That's a dangerous combination when you want money and you don't like work. Because what's your, you can either go live out behind the Kroger somewhere, or you steal, or you sell drugs, or you burglarize, or you hold somebody up, or you embezzle, or you do uh, grab the purse and take her identity schemes. How many of you have ever lost your identity because somebody broke into your car? Anybody? Not on our parking lot? Okay. But you'll find guys that will, not wanting to work, they'll go around the system and they'll do something criminal. Uh, and then guys that make money, but they don't know how to save money. They waste it. They blow it on booze. They blow it on drugs. They blow it on hookers. They um, always are looking for the wise man's uh, eyes are always before him, but the fool's eyes are on the ends of the world. He's always looking for a get-rich scheme to come in and blow in his money. What's the old poor Richard's uh, admonition? A penny saved, penny earned. You know what that means? You have to work to earn a penny and you gotta work to save it. It takes as much brains to handle your money as it does to make your money. A penny saved is an act of effort. You got to think. And so it's been my opinion that those are the guys, generally speaking, they neglect the character that it's going to take to, to hire them. Secondly, they are willing to do anything to get money. Thirdly, they will waste it when they get it because they don't know how to work through the system. You know, we had a deal... I love it. I'll tell you this story. I've never told it before, but we it's a second service. Are the Cowboys playing? Oh, we got all day. Okay. When's TCU play? Oh, we got all night. We got all day. <laughs> we have a 
about 10 acres. And uh, I found out that in our days, we called them hobos. Today, they're just homeless. And they're always guys a lot younger than me, a lot healthier than me, but just don't want to work. And they'll get out on our property back in the brush and you start smelling things or starting fires out there. All right. And so Teresa mentioned it and John Clark, my son, uh, Corporal John Clark, Fort Worth PD, came over to the house with his wife and his two kids. And uh, Teresa said, John, I think there's some guys that are out there on our property back in the brush that have started, you know, Hobo City out there. And then they need a zip code in this place. And John went out there and he started through the brush and lo and behold, it was a little homeless city out there. And they were all gone. And some guy had a uh, pair of bolt cutters I'm not sure why a homeless guy needs bolt cutters. No, I am sure. Because they had broke into our barn and stole a dirt bike. You ever seen a homeless guy on a burnt dirt bike? He had one. And then they had wire cutters. And then they had uh, some tools that belonged to us around there. And my son saw it. And uh, right at that time, a guy comes riding up on his bicycle. And the bicycle ain't got no air in it. It ain't the best of bicycles, all right? So he's riding this bicycle who's flat, okay? So this is not the sharpest guy we've ever run into. And John goes, hey, come here. What are you doing back here? This is private property. He said, well, I, I, I was just riding my bike and just thought I'd take a turn. Yeah, and you ended up out here in the briars. Huh? I can understand that. Come here. And the guy takes off. And so John had picked up a pipe wrench. The guy had also stole the pipe wrench. And John goes running after him with a pipe wrench. Okay. And my daughter-in-law sees this. And I'm in the house and she calls me. And she said, Pops, yeah, you got a gun? John's chasing a guy with a pipe wrench. I didn't know what was going on. I grabbed my 12 gauge. <laughs> I think I had my underwear and that's all. And I'm running with my 12 gauge beside my son who's got these big old boots on and he's got a pipe wrench. And a hobo is pedaling this bicycle with no air in the tire. And my other grandson, Jake, he's with Jenny and he sees what's happening and they jump in the gator. All right, y'all got a gator? Greatest kid toy you can ever get. And so Jake takes off and, G and Jenny says, get him, Jake. So Jake... It's going in the gator and Jenny's on the outside calling somebody, all right? So here's John with a pipe wrench and me with a 12 gauge and here comes Jake. And then my other little grandson, Turner, he saw what was happening and he takes off running. And Teresa didn't know where he was going. He just knew there was a bad guy out here. And she said, well, Turner, he was just about nine years old. You better get something. So he grabs a rock, okay? <laughs> and so... There's John Clark, there's me, here comes Jake, here comes Jenny, and here comes Turner. All right, so it was like, if you'd have had a musical deal, you'd have gone, it's like hee-haw, all right. So we're chasing them off the deal. And after that, they, 
I can't tell you what the guy said while he was running. It was profane, but it was really funny. <laughs> but he left and headed off down the road. So we all assembled with our rocks and our pipe wrenches and our gators and our telephones and our 12 gauges. It just bound us together. I mean, it was a, it was a binding event, okay? And we started laughing. And basically, John used it as a teaching deal. He said, boys, this is not, this is not the way you want to spend your life, is hiding out on somebody else's property illegally because you don't want to work. Work. Part of the creation was for him to work. The curse came with the debilitating nature of work. But work is of God. On six days, he finished his work. And he allows man to do the same thing. You work. Amen. You work. Father in heaven, I pray that uh, these essential ideas, they are so basic. They're A, B, C, one, two, three, yellow, red, blue. They're very simple. They are modeled and they are taught in seconds from respected people to people who are young and look up. And so I pray that uh, like the old Amish would say, that our work is our worship of excellence, of whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. You do it with excellence. And so make us a new generation and let us see, God, what, what prosperity really is. It is the simplicity of Barney and Andy on the porch with Opie and Aunt B and Gomer and Goober and friends enjoying a Sabbath after a hard day's and a hard week's work and a good meal and good music and good fellowship. How sweet life can be at its simplest place. And for those who are not yoked to you and are running loose, let them know of the nail-pierced hands of the shepherd of the sheep who came for us and died for their sins and rose that he might come into their life and take them where he will be. And in the meantime, he will be where we are. And Father, we'll ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.